Hello and welcome to the Governance for Beginners workshop series. You are listening to a podcast produced by JT Live Radio Ghana and the Center of African Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. My name is Jacob Albin Korem and the fundamental concept the fundamental concept of governance is all about, um, pre- like, I don't know, like setting up machinery, all right, to regulate the activities of the people in a particular jurisdiction. So when we talk of governance, it can have political connotations. It can have there are many ways of looking at it, but generally, when we talk of governance, we are talking of a body or a or some sort of machinery that has been kept in place to regulate the activities of people. To me, governance is a body that helps to regulate the resources and activities of people in a country. I think governance is the sum total of the delivery of government business. You know, so you are looking at uh, the economy, you are looking at the politics, you are looking at the institutions, uh, you are looking at the security services, uh, you are looking at industrialization, you are looking at energy, you are looking at all the sectors of the economy and how they can coexist towards uh, uh, the total development and human progress of any country. Is there any link between governance and natural resource? There is a positive relationship between governance and resources, resource management as the case may be, because when we talk of government, all things being equal, everything in the state belongs to the government, in, in, looking at it from some perspective. So that means it is within the power of government to decide how it is to be managed. So that means if government has wrong policies towards management, it will translate itself into how resources will be managed. If government has positive um, policies about how resources should be managed, it will translate itself. And if government is adamant and doesn't re- even care about how resources should be managed, it also translates itself. So there's a direct link between how resources are managed and the policies of government. Yeah, yeah I, I think, yes, there is a direct relationship between governance and then uh, natural resources in the sense that government uh, has the, uh, always has the upper hand when it comes to management and the use of these resources because the government or governance uh, talk, talks about the people restricting the people or managing the people in a way that they are not able to do certain things and are allowed to do certain things. So when it comes to the use of natural resources, which obviously uh, relate with people using the natural resources, then government has a control over the people as to what they can use in the environment or what they can't use. Have your group used audio or radio for any of your campaigns or any activity of the group? Yes, the group has used radio to facilitate the mobilization of people for grassroots campaign on key issues such as the coal anti-coal campaign that and the death of whales in Ghana. What we do with radio is that we pass on information, we inform people so that they know the pros and cons of the subject we are talking about. We try to use radio to let them get involved at the grassroots level so that they can see that the problem is not only at the top for the government to solve, but the problem also, they can be a channel to be part of the solution. Yeah. Normally, when we have campaigns, we request for interviews. 
at various radio stations so that we can propagate that message. How do you use social media or new media to address issues of natural resource? You all know preserving environment is also linked to preserving natural resources. And that is the main focus of the Ghana Youth Environmental Movement. So all the campaigns we've run on preserving the ecosystem and protecting the environment and national, uh, natural resources towards sustainability have been driven through social media. Everything we do is social media driven. I want to know, since you've been using the social media, radio and other stuff, if there have been any challenges? One of the main problems associated with social media is that sometimes the people are just virtual people. Oh, yeah. So because of that, the fact that so many people have liked what you said doesn't mean they actually would come if you ask them to come and stand with you. So sometimes the, the difference between the real people themselves and the virtual aspect of the people can be a problem. You might think that more people are interested in something, but they may not end up showing up. So sometimes it's difficult. To okay. Yes. Uh, I, I think what my, my colleague said is very true. Now, there is also another direction, another dimension about the fact that obviously sometimes we are very careful about what uh, the angle we spin our campaign messages so that uh, you don't make it too political because we are building a movement of diverse people. So we need people in politics and people outside politics. We need people from uh, various political parties uh, to build momentum. But with a challenge, it's also about uh, the lack of the media to support issues that has to do with environment and natural resources. So you go on, you go on the media to speak about a campaign on uh, on the environment, and you are given like two minutes or even five minutes, you know. Whereas a political discussion could have the whole day, you know. So those are some of the risks because people feel that no, uh, we have to you have to make political discussions a priority over, let's say, environmental issues or issues that has to do with natural resources. Also, on that same issue, sometimes it's not victimization per se, but it can be intimidation. Because sometimes you look at the movement itself, the number of people you have, the category of people you have, your standing, and you compare yourself to the people you are coming up against, you might feel intimidated. For instance, when we're talking about coal, there were many problems. Like there was a time when one of a member of a political, not a political think tank, but like a, think, a major think tank, spoke against what we were saying. And... We, we felt a bit, even though I will not say we were intimidated, but at least we felt that we were coming up against a force that was mighty. So sometimes the base, the people that you are dealing with, the number of people you have and the standing you have, the power and authority that is invested in you, you can easily feel intimidated because most of the bodies you would be speaking against would be bodies who are over and above you in some sense. I would like to ask your general thoughts on the podcast by Professor Silas Siako. He hit the nail right on the head. Because we all know governance and management of natural resources come hand in hand. There's the policies that the governments put out there. That is implemented. It affects our natural resources directly. Because let's say if the government should agree that the coal factory should be built in Ghana. We know the amount of environmental degradation that will come 
to Ghana and the amount of pollution that we are going to suffer. So everything he said is very informative and I've got to learn a couple of stuff like um, we should change the way we do business. We should change our mindset because everything comes from the mind. You think about it, you feel it in your heart and then you do it with your hands. So it's very informative. She was able to talk about some features of good governance in Africa. He did mention of um, having strong institutions and good institutions in existence and also having a world um, territory. When you come to Africa, most of our territory people um, fight over, over oil because of um, not well demarcated territory. So if we want to have a good governance in Africa, we should be able to sit down to demarcate very well. I'm sure the Niger Delta, the fight over there is because of oil and it's as a result of um, poor demarcation of um, territory. Then also the population, when you're dealing with governance, you should be able to consider the people. The people are the population. If you tend to ignore these people, then you tend to go against what you are supposed to do as a government. So he did talk about the population. Then sovereignty, when you come to West Africa, we don't have a lot, we don't have sovereignty at all. We gain independence and now we still sit down for other countries to dictate for the country. We don't have sovereignty. When, I quite remember when, Nkrumah, when Ghana had independence, Nkrumah stated that no part of our land should be let out towards foreigners. But now what do we see? We sit down and we allow China and other countries to invade our land they are doing say All these things talks about sovereignty. We, if you don't have sovereignty, sovereignty you, don't, you cannot move on. Okay. Then he came to decentralization, whereby you have to go down to know what is actually happening to, at the ground level. If you sit at the capital level and you do not go to the um, central areas, you do not go to the local areas, you will not get to know what your people want what is needed and what you are supposed to do. You will sit at one place and what you hear is not what is actually happening at the ground. So if you want to have a good governance in West Africa or in Africa, we should be able to decentralize our system of government to the local level to the extent that everybody will be able to partake in the government. Then the system of government that we practice is very bad, whereby one party gains power and employs the people that he wants. Meanwhile, there are people who are very competent, but they are what, in the oppo opposition party. So if we do not change our system of government, whereby we will have competent people coming together to form a government at the end of the day, we will always go to the extent that, well, this is my brother. He helped me during the campaign, so I have to employ him. Meanwhile, he is not competent. And when he comes, he also tends to bring his family members in. When they, when they get all that they need, they move out. So this is what I think was captured by Professor. Thank you. Um, I would like to also raise some few points. There is the issue of institutions, but uh, there is also the point where government creates some institutions, not necessarily to help manage our resources, but to say thank you to people who have helped him come to power. I would like to cite the issue of SADA, for example. They've been cited for some uh, negligence by not taking due uh, cognizance into 
setting up the SADA itself and signing, uh, awarding contracts to people. And now it has become an issue of mismanagement of state funds where they've uh, given money to people who they shouldn't have given the money to. So this is also an institution that has been set up by government rights, but there have been no due diligence done and it has cost the state a lot of money. Do you think that this is a major problem that is confronting uh, government, especially in our situation as a country, and is it affecting the management of our natural resource? Just a quick one, then we move on to the next question. I do think that it greatly affects um, the country. What I do think is that most of these institutes, like you rightly said, or institutions, the government do not put technical people there. They put people who may not have any um, background or any knowledge about whatsoever they are going to do, just because the person campaigned for them. So what I think is that it's high time people who are the, the grassroots people are made to choose people for institutions. You can't just appoint your friend or appoint your sister to head an institution without the background. The person is going to fail. So I, I think that is, that is our problem. Yeah. I want to add something. I mean, the SADA issue is very interesting. Uh, I won't talk much, but I want to give a preamble to what SADA really stands for, because uh, uh, some of us might think SADA is not directly related to natural resources and what we do, but it's the most direct, uh, it has the most direct relationship to natural resources than anything. So when you go to the SADA website, it actually says that SADA constitutes Ghana's response to effects of climate change associated with floods and drought. The agency's main trust is to promote sustainable development using the notion of forested and green north to catalyze climate change reversal and improve livelihoods of the most vulnerable citizens in the area. The strategy being developed will provide opportunities for poor peasants, especially women, to own assets in economic trees, sustain their food production, and protect the fragile ecosystem of the northern savannah by managing the flood-prone riverbeds better. Thank you very much. Yeah, for me as well, I think that um, in, our part of, in our part of the world, I mean the continent of Africa, um, the power, so much power has been given to the president or the executive, so to speak. So it becomes very easy for him to appoint people, uh, establish institutions that may not necessarily uh, come to help the natural resource or to help the people in the continent. So like the professor rightly said, uh, he mentioned that I think in Liberia, it, about 80% of, of the power belongs to the president. So the president can appoint or remove anyone uh, as he wills. And I, I think that that's very much uh, is affecting, impeding the development of the continent. Looking at the fact that natural resources are uh, control the main areas of the economy in Africa. I think that uh, that's really how much the power given to the president can affect the continent in a whole. And he also mentioned the fact that the, the, the government will always, or in most situations, go behind the private sector rather than going behind the people. Because uh, when you go to some areas, when the, the, the private sector wants to, uh, for instance, establish uh, some company or whichever processing company, 
consultation, no consultation has been done between the people, the government, and the private sector. So we find that the, all the discussions being between the private sector and the government, and the government signs everything, finalized without consulting the people down there. And when the private people go there, you find the people trying to resist in several forms. Then it becomes an issue of security, an issue of safety and all that, and which is, I think, that is a major concern. So the government must realize that the people are very much part of the process. The people elected you not to, to, to represent them and also to help them, but not to think for them. So I think that the, the government must always make sure that the people or the grassroots people are involved in discussions to bring development to the, the, the community. How does the government engage with citizens on the management of natural resources? On this question, if we have decentralization, it is the best way we can involve the people in the management of natural resources. If you tend to sit at the capital seat, you realize that you do everything on your, on your own without consulting the people. But if you are able to decentralize to the local level, where you involve the district assemblies, you involve the, you come to the um, assemblymans, you come to the, to the assembly, then you come to the municipal, then you come to the regional, you see everything will come from the grassroots level, whereby you have every consent of every citizen. But if you tend not to, de to decentralize war, or you tend to focus on centralization, that's whereby you have, you, you do everything at, this, at a capital. Then you are ignoring the people and you are doing the, your thing on your own. Okay. We have all the structures, everything you can talk of on paper that we're supposed to press. Actually, the assemblyman is the last person that represents the president at the what? The local level. But the question we should ask is, what is the communication between the assemblyman and then the MP? Exactly. The assemblyman and the sub metro. Assemblyman and his unit assembly. Virtually there's nothing going on. Yeah. It is only on paper that yes, we have a decentralization system that says that the assemblyman is supposed to do A and B and C. The resources to even to resource assemblyman is a problem. Yes. When you go to a local setup, when you ask assemblyman is Raina, when you ask him, Master, this is the real situation. Yeah. So on paper, yes, it's done nicely, being captured black and white. Yeah. But implementation is another problem. Okay. As to whether our local system assembly is working is another ball game. How does Ghana Youth Environmental Movement help yeah. to create conservations at local and national levels about natural resource management. Yeah, I think that um, as part of our activities, we normally raise out topical issues about the environment. We, when we see um, the environmental degradation or we see pollution, we raise it up. It's, it now depends on grassroots people to make an effort and the media to pick it up. I think one challenge we've had is that mainstream media is not very interested in environmental issues and so it becomes difficult to drive the conversations from there but we are trying to use other means and that's why we are very very active on social media so we use social media to propel messages and conversations about 
environment. Do you have any of these uh, conversations on audio forms or recorded forms? Not really. Most most at times they are blog posts, notes on so on Facebook, Twitter, yeah. Okay. WordPress and those other stuff. Okay. Once you identify the problems and then you blog post it, Facebook, Twitter, and the rest, the people are now aware of what is going on. Now, what action is being taken on them? We run campaigns. And when you look at a campaign, it is a lot of uh, activities. Like, so you have your campaign strategy and you have a lot of tactics. Okay, so probably your first tactic will be educating people, and then your second tactic will be okay, let's send petitions. Your, if the petitions fail, you probably want to go on the streets and then uh, you, you do direct action. You know, so it is a lot of uh, activities that is embedded in a campaign. So we don't really say, okay, uh, let's educate people on this issue and we leave it there. We are always trying to build momentum and you build momentum when you take every issue one step at a time and then you look at how ripen the issue is and how ripen the environment is then you move on to the next level so it's about education it's about empowerment and it's about action at the end of the day so let's say we had uh, an issue of uh, the government wanting to build a 700 megawatt coal-fired power plant in Ghana with uh, support from China. So what we did was to explain to people what exactly the issue is about, how to win an argument about coal, and then we made a, a, a very bold step. We took a very bold step by going uh, to the Ministry of Energy to present our petition and also to present uh, alternatives. So that is the action. Okay, so we don't only educate people, we look at the alternative because politics is about policy. And in policy, there are always alternatives. That's why you cannot do politics or you cannot do policy within the four walls of parliament or even on the streets by being, by being a determinist or a nihilist. You need to understand that things can change and there are other outcomes that are better than others. Um, just a follow-up question. Um, you raise education and awareness. How can the local people also be given a voice to know what are the challenges confronting us in terms of natural resource management, especially the fishermen, youth, and market women? Those, I would say that is the grassroots frontline communities. Okay, And so we need to go down. That's why you need to look at change from the bottom to the up. Because from time immemorial, the government always follows where the people go. I mean, government, politicians, and businesses have always been a direct beneficiary of change, but they've always been a passive uh, contributor to any uh, social change. If the change is not happening, they enjoy it, benefits, and if the change happens, they also enjoy it. But the transition is what is expensive for them to bear. So we need to empower, we need to go down, we need to empower these people, we need to give them a voice. And that is about movement building. We look at the grassroots, we empower the grassroots, so the grassroots can take the message in their communities and let their voices be heard. So that when you have uh, the death of whales in, let's say, uh, western region, you don't move from Accra 
to do activism there. The grassroots could take the message, stand up as a frontline community, and make sure that those in Accra will listen to them and go and respond to their needs there. So it's about empowerment at the grassroots level, and that is movement building, which is quite different from how a normal NGO operates. We done a lot of campaigns. One that we had was titled Ask Your MPY, where we told the um, local people we are going to bring the MPs so that any challenge about the environment that they have, they ask. So you get school children asking the MP questions about environment. You get market women at Thema Station asking the MPY. That is a classic example of making sure that the grassroots get access to the big men at the top so that there will be communication and they will hold those people accountable. Another example was in 2012 when one youth organization known as the Ghana Youth Empowerment Synergy Ghana decided to come together to form a coalition whereby they collected ideas from people at the local people to form one voice known as the National Youth Manifesto Book. So they went to all the villages to gather ideas from all both literate and illiterate personnel over there. So they went to every corner and ghetto in the country to get ideas, and later they decided to put it in one book. So if you are a government and you come into power, well, we say that these are the voices of the youth of Ghana. So if you want to do something, you pick the book, you know the areas, education, um, health, everything. When it comes to ICT, everything. When you get that book, you, you can know what the people... So that's a practical example about policy and going to the grassroots level. Uh, we also ran a campaign, I think, uh, last year, Echo Preachers Campaign. Echo Preachers Campaign, where we actually went on board public transport and then uh, you know spoke about recycling basic recycling in the house you know how to do composting how to make sure that when you have a sachet uh, where to tend them uh, to and uh, how to protect the environment at the basic level you know and then during the time that we recorded the massive death of whales we sent some of our activists to the western region to empower frontline communities, communities who were, who were dealing with the direct con health consequence of the death of the whales. Because the whales are washed ashore, they decay, there is a lot of, uh, you know, the smell is not good enough, and then the stench and all that is the, the health hazards. So our activists were there to also empower other frontline activists, to also empower the communities, to be able to raise their voice for the government to respond. And the government responded. There was actually an official message from the office of the president to say that they've heard the voices of the frontline communities, the grassroots, and they are going to respond, but they didn't, they didn't anyway. Yeah, before we wrap up, I've forgotten one quick question. The professor raised the issue of corruption, and whereby um, states giving opportunity to institutions to manage our resource, then they transport the profit, if my language is right, back to their countries and it's affecting us as a country. Do you think that Ghana is experiencing that challenge? And 
if we are experiencing that challenge, what is the current situation? I think, um, like you, Riley got that message from the professor. It came from the issue of value addition. Um, taking the raw material or the raw resource, he said, uh, our institutions, the local ones, were not built, or our, uh, the companies were, or the industries were not built to create value on the products that we, ex we extract raw from here. So the, the government had to bring in foreign uh, investors or foreign companies to, to take this raw product, export it, add value to it, take out the profits, obviously, uh, sometimes even more than how much the local people or how much the, the local country gets. So they, they, the, those who come in take the value, they add more value to it while we use the uh, we are able to produce only the raw material. So it's the difference between adding value to the raw material. That's what forces the, the government to allow some foreigner to take uh, the product out there. And I think that's, like you said, rightly may breed corruption in the sense that the local people, the government is still not bent on ensuring that the local industries are able to add value to the product right here. But then they're still interested in bringing the people in here through tendering and some kickbacks and all that, so they're able to do that and then add the value and then send them back here for us to purchase. Yeah, okay. Um, he's actually said uh, what is actually going on. <laughs> he's actually said what is going on as of now. And uh, what I think currently we need to do is we need to put structures down to hold our leaders accountable. There is no accountability. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was actually talking to a friend of mine, asking him what can we actually do to reduce corruption. Then he said if uh, we actually uh, make all people who uh, get into power swear to a particular local god like Antoine <laughs> swear to a particular god like Antoine Yama. There, you see, Ant Antoine Yama is very fast. So as soon as, yes. So you see, as soon as you violate it, Antoine Yama will strike. You understand? So people wouldn't really go there, go close to it. So I think that is what the people of Ghana, more especially the youths of Ghana, have to um, 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 get to. We need to get to a stage whereby we can really hold our leaders accountable. accountable. When we are able to hold our leaders accountable, natural resources are going to be managed very well. We have all that it takes, okay, to really add value to our natural resources and then even use them in our local uh, societies so that it could help us in one way or the other. Government and that, uh, and for that matter, poor leadership have created room for people to behave dishonestly. And when people start uh, behaving dishonestly, then you can know that corruption is on the way. The last two. Uh, for me, I want to still on, the, still on the issue of corruption. I think that the current machinery the government is operating uh, gives room to other people to cut corners in the, in, the, in the process of democracy or in the process of um, trying to govern the people. For instance, I think throughout our discussion, we've left out the, uh, the factors of the chiefs or those who govern our local people, or those in the rural areas. And in a recent expose, Anas Arimeyao, uh, one of his expose, I think, uh, Dons of the Forest, which talks about uh, illegal lumbering in uh, some, uh, some areas, uh, 
cutting of trees. I think that when you when you watch that that documentary, you realize that the chiefs played very very important roles in it because the government is not in quotes considering them in some some in, to some extent. So they decide to create their own sort of local governance where they are they are able to uh, sign give contracts chiefs involved in international deals, bringing people from outside to give a portion of a sacred forest to the people to cut down trees and then take those trees, export them, and even sometimes sell to its local people, even to the extent of um, sacrificing the, 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 the farmlands of local people just to, to, to get the monies the foreign investors are bringing. So I think that the chieftaincy, uh, I don't exactly have solutions on how government can really factor the chieftaincy back into uh, their operations. But then I think that that's something we should also look at. The corruption, not only at the governors, the political side, but also the chiefs down there and their, the people around yeah, them yeah, as well. He asked, uh, why do we sit down for people to come in and then take our resources away? Okay. First of all, the people we put in charge or people we get assigned to take care of our resources. One, don't have the technical know-how of how to handle those kind of resources. Uh, then, the last but not the least, okay. <laughs> the, the last but not the least. From my childhood when I started school, all right, we were just told how to sweep, plant a, a tree. They didn't really get into details. Okay, try to let us know the effect that the environment is going to have on us if we don't handle it well. I would then like to, to, to you know, to see stuff of such sort in such a way that it becomes part and parcel of us. Because today, when I'm crossing, when I'm crossing the road, okay, I run even if there is no car approaching. Yeah. I, I need to run because I was taught. You know, it's from childhood. So I think when we have tools or syllabus that is actually going to let us learn stuff of such sort when we are young, it's really going to have a positive impact on us. And I think the Ghana Youth Environmental mm -hmm. Movement is doing so well when it comes to that. We have... Um, Clubs. clubs in schools, schools that we are trying to equip them with this environmental uh, issues. Thank you to all those who participated in the production of this podcast. This workshop was part of the Governance for Development in Africa Initiative, funded by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation in collaboration with Center of African Studies. London and JT Live Radio Ghana. To listen to this podcast again, please visit www.governanceinafrica.org. More information on this youth engagement initiative can be found at the same address. To find out more about JT Live Radio, please visit jtliveghana.org. 